If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Did medieval monarchs ever get together for a Christmas dinner? What were kings' lives like before they came to the throne? And how might a pig have transformed the fate of Eleanor of Aquitaine? In her new book, Two Houses, Two Kingdoms, Catherine Hanley answers these questions and more, exploring the intertwined connections between the medieval kingdoms of England and France through the lives of the men, women and children involved. Emily Briffitt spoke to Catherine to find out more. Lovely to be chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about your new book, Two Houses, Two Kingdoms, which follows the relationships between the dynasties of England and France between 1100 and 1300. But it also aims to disambiguate people from the past and provide a picture from both sides. What was your inspiration for writing this book? Um, Well, the last couple of books that I've written have both been biographies of individuals, um, which is a very interesting thing to do. But individuals don't exist in a vacuum. They're always the product of everything else around them. And this time round, I just wanted to get a much bigger picture. And the other thing that I'm interested in, having written biographies, is people. Um, so this is the story, although the, the book's called Two Houses, Two Kingdoms, History of France and England, 1100 to 1300. But it's a book about people. It's the story of these two houses and these two kingdoms told through the story of the people involved. Why did you choose to look at the period between 1100 and 1300 then? Oh, I just, it's so interesting and so exciting. There's so much going on in there. So it has been perhaps a little bit neglected. It's kind of sandwiched in between the Norman Conquest and the Hundred Years' War. Um, and is perhaps a little bit less well known, but there's so many fascinating characters in there. You know, you've got in 
England, you've got Henry II, you've got Eleanor of Aquitaine, Richard the Lionheart John, and in France, you've got Philip Augustus, and you've got St. Louis, and and all these wonderful people. And it, it was just a really good opportunity to to put it all together and get this kind of big sweeping picture of how these two houses related to each other. So can we sort of start at the beginning? When do they start to have this interrelation between, just for a bit of context? Well, that's why I decided to start in 1100 rather than, say, 1066. Um, So previously, England's main relationships had been more with the Scandinavian countries. But the accession of William the Conqueror, who was from Normandy and therefore technically a vassal of the King of France, um, meant that we suddenly have this new kind of relationship between the person who's on the throne of England and the person who's on the throne of of France. And this created like a whole new dynamic. Um, And I picked that up in the year 1100 when William the Conqueror's son, Henry I, had, had just come to the throne um, with a really fascinating incident where he, at, at Christmas in the year 1100, um, he was hosting a big feast, as kings often did at Christmas. And one of the people that was there was Louis. So this is the future Louis VI. At the time, he was not. He was the heir to the throne. Um, and quite suddenly, um, Henry gets this letter from France purporting to be from Philip I, the King of France, saying, my son Louis is with you. And uh, by the way, could you imprison him and keep him in prison for the rest of his life? Because I don't want him back. Um, Which is a really, you know, a a slightly surprising way for a relationship between two dynasties to start. I mean, as it turns out, the letter didn't come from the King of France at all. It came from his his wife, who was Louis' stepmother, who who wanted her own sons to succeed the, to the throne in, instead of him, but it was just it was just such a kind of crash bang wallop way for these these two dynasties to start interacting with each other that it just seemed like the perfect place to start, and we could we could carry on from there. From that point on, do we see any trends over the relationship between English royals and French royals? Do we see any standout points? Yes, we do. So I mean, obviously. This was not a great way for the dynasties to get off on the on the right foot, and they did when uh, it was short. It was only a few years after that that Philip the first died and Louis the sixth came to the throne, and he and Henry didn't really get on too well. They were both very, very good kings um, and very strong kings in their own country, which naturally meant that they they kind of didn't get on very well together, and there was there was a lot of conflict and. One of the most interesting things I found with being able to look at this bigger picture over 200 years is it all kind of goes in waves and phases. Sometimes we have kings who absolutely loathed each other on the thrones on each side of the channel. And sometimes we have kings who who got on really well. And I must add queens and princes and princesses as well. But yeah, the, the kings, it, it's and the relationship between the countries in the way the kings related to each other personally. Because this is an age of what I would call personal monarchy, okay, which is a sort of in-between thing. So at the moment in the 21st century, what, what we have in Britain is a constitutional monarchy, which means there is a monarch, but it's the government that makes the laws. And right at the other end of the scale, you've got something called absolute monarchy, which is where the king, or sometimes queen, but normally king, is in absolute charge of everything. Now, I I didn't want to go as far as calling this absolute monarchy because there were in the in the 12th and 13th centuries there were some kind of checks and balances so i call it personal monarchy and this means that the king was in personal charge of the kingdom 
right? It's a pyramid and there's just one person at the top. And when you've got just one person at the top, it means that the personality and the likes and the dislikes of that person become very, very important in the way that the kingdom is governed and in the way that that kingdom relates to to other kingdoms. So this is why I wanted to focus the story on people rather than events or or politics or, or things like that. Are there any particular points where we really see sort of some standout personalities really having an impact on what's going on within the kingdoms? Oh, yes. I mean, and not just their own, but also the other one. I mean, one of my favourite kings of the Middle Ages is um, Philip Augustus, who was a very great king of France. And he was an absolute genius, psychologically speaking. He played the members of the English royal family off against each other, just one after the other, getting them to rebel against each other and have wars against each other just by sort of needling them in exactly the right places. And so while, you know, the English royal family were busy sort of imploding, he was he was able to really strengthen France. Um, and, yeah, there, there are just other ways in which the the kings of of each kingdom could could really influence what was going on in the other one um, just by getting on with or not getting on with the king on the other side. I mean, in complete contrast to that, 100 years later, when we've got Henry III on the throne in England and Louis IX in France, they got on absolutely brilliantly. They loved each other. They were married to two sisters, which made them brothers-in-law, which actually helped. But there was an awful lot of this, oh, well, you know, why don't you come over to Paris for Christmas and we'll have a lovely family gathering sort of thing. Um, And it's just so, so different. This is why I was really enjoying getting this big picture because you can get all these these ups and downs. Was it common for the kings of France and England and their families to meet up for social occasions? No, <laughs> not really, no. Unless it was a wedding, um, because there were an awful lot of intermarriages between the two dynasties. And I think at one point I was I was looking and going, well, all right, Edward I and Philip III are first cousins to each other because their mothers were sisters, but they're also second cousins to each other because of their fathers both being descended from somebody else. And they're also both descended from Henry I and both descended from Louis VI. And you start, you know, I mean, please, I didn't try and draw a family tree at the beginning of this book. It would have been absolutely crazy. It would have been, I would have need kind of four-dimensional paper or something to, to be able to get it on. Because, yeah, there were an awful lot of marriages because um, if you'd been at war with with somebody and then you sealed a peace treaty, it was very, very common to, to seal that peace treaty, to seal the deal by arranging a marriage. Um, and sometimes it was might have been the king himself or sometimes it might have been the king's son or the king's daughter and, and just marrying each other. So there were so many intermarriages that they were, you know, the although we count them as two separate dynasties, they were very, very interlaced. Um, and I, I just found that fascinating. You know, um, kings and queens, they might have been brothers-in-law or sisters-in-law or, or cousins to each other. And and so, I mean, basically how a king got on with his in-laws could, could have a great, influence on 
you know, millions of people lower down the scale because it might have a great influence on whether he went to war or whether there was peace and whether they could just continue with their lives in in peace, all dependent on whether the king got on well with his mother-in-law or not. Well, if I were to marry my sister, say, off to some foreign prince, would she be then, you've got that thing of when, would she be allied to me or to him? And surely that creates a little bit of friction at this time. Yeah, and and this was a, a particular role played by by women. They were constantly being asked to be intercessors. They would they would be told that they needed to marry as part of a peace treaty, um, you know. And then five years later, their father and their husband would be at war with each other, and they got stuck right in the middle. So, um, just to use an example. Um, Louis VII, the King of France, his daughter, um, Margaret, married Henry, who we call Henry the Young King, who was the eldest son of Henry II, um, as part of a treaty. They got married very, very young, actually. Young Henry was five and Margaret was two at the time that they got married. These are the sort of things you don't realise. You might just see it written down, Henry married Margaret, and you think, oh, fair enough. But when you actually dig into it, you think, wow. And yeah, she was constantly, she ended up, you know, she, there was a war between Louis VII and Henry II, and she was captured by Henry II. And then yeah, Henry the young king rebelled against his father and poor Margaret ended up being a hostage. Um, and then later on, when Henry II thought it would be useful, he sent her as an envoy to Louis VII going, get your dad on side for me in this, you know. And, and women were constantly having to play these sort of roles. And it was difficult. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it's bad enough if you have a, you know, family row around the table on Christmas Day, never mind people actually going to war with each other. And you're expected to be the go-between that brings peace. I'm talking about women. What other roles did women play? Okay, so yeah, I mean, this couple of hundred years did offer plenty of opportunities for women. Now, it's important to remember they had to exercise power differently to men. Okay, the rules of the game, if you like, were different for them. But that doesn't mean they weren't playing that game. It just means they were playing it differently. So a king is able to take power in his own right and say, I want to do this, I want to do that. Um, but a woman um, is not allowed to do that. Okay, this is the, the, the main instance of this during the 200 years that we're talking about is Empress Matilda, who was Henry I's daughter. And she sought to claim the English throne in her own right, which was not very popular. But there were a lot of women who ruled, but as long as they were doing it, on behalf of a male relative, right? So um, if a king was away out of his country, he might leave his wife as his regent. Um, and if a king was underage, his mother might act as his regent. So women exercise power, but they always had to be very, very careful to, to do it in a way that sort of kept them within the box, if you like, of this, of this male power. And... Um, one of the other important things about queens is because we're talking about an era of personal monarchy, the king is the person in charge, who is the person who has the greatest personal access to the king? It's the queen, isn't it? So the queen can very much be the power behind the throne. 
if you like. She has access to the king that nobody else has, and she can talk to him and say, well, you know, what about doing this? Or what about that? Or what about making peace? So people know people from the nobility and, and, and royal other royal families would, would quite often come to the queen to ask her to act as a kind of intercessor with, with her husband. Oh, I've done a bad thing and the king wants to punish me. Perhaps you could plead on my behalf and, and he might be merciful, that, that kind of thing. So this did give um, women a very important role to play. It's, it's a common kind of misconception, actually, that because women or, or young girls didn't generally have much say in the choice of whom they would marry, particularly for their first marriage, um, that they were completely powerless. But they weren't, right? The job was, you got given your husband, almost, you know, by fate, you know, you were given your husband in the same way that you were given your rank in life. The, the job of that woman was to see what she could make of her life and make of her position after that had happened, so these women were not powerless just because they were being told who they had to marry. They 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 were just going about exerting power in a in a different way to men. How do we then see women perhaps represented in the sources? Nearly all of the people who wrote these sources, these chronicles, are men, right? And of those men, nearly all of them were clerical. So they were monks or, or you know, the members of the church because they were the people who were likely to be most literate and able to do the writing. And um, some of those had been brought up never having seen a woman <laughs> because they'd been in monasteries since they were young and, and women were very much the other to them. Um, others weren't, you know, others were, were more used to it. They were sort of more cosmopolitan. Um, but, yeah, they did have very sort of strict understandings and and as i've said any any woman who attempted to sort of gain power in her own name would be sure to be criticized by these chroniclers and if they sort of stepped out of line i mean some of the clerical chroniclers had quite a lot to say about eleanor of aquitaine rebelling against her husband for example about you know disobedient wives and and things like that but they they could they did also recognize that royal women, queens, princesses, and noble women as well made a huge contribution to society, um, and that they could praise them by but by saying, you know, oh, and she ruled the estates really well while her husband was away at the crusade, and she was a picture of charity and generosity and piety, and so yeah, women could get portrayed positively, but they. Well, I suppose it's a bit like the press now, isn't it? You've got to tread very carefully to see how your public profile is going and you have to sort of stay within the acknowledged rules. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And there are all sorts of obscure and, and quite frankly bizarre things happening that had a massive um, effect on the course of events. I could make quite a good case that Eleanor of Aquitaine only became the Queen of England because a teenager was killed by a pig in the streets of Paris. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I wanted to ask you as well about something that you mentioned earlier, which is about childhood. I think we have a tendency to see monarchs suddenly pop up on the pop up in the timeline. Suddenly they're king and we don't know anything really about what they did in their childhood how it was growing up. Can you tell us a bit about the childhood experience and what were children expected to do in this era? Oh, absolutely. I mean, royal children were thrust onto the national and international stage at very young ages. And yeah, exactly as you say, there is a tendency in sort of some history books to go, ta-da, he's the king now, and he's, you know, kind of 25 or something. And you think, well, where did he come from? And, you know, uh, all of the the kings and and the queens that are in the book all had obviously different experiences, but there, there were some that could be more common. So it was very common to have lost at least one parent at a young age. Um, and it was extremely common to have lost siblings, right? So infant mortality, you know, was was very was rife at the time. And although we sort of think, well, it was so rife that maybe they didn't love their children all that much and all the rest of it, that you know, there are loads of examples of of parents being really devastated when their children died. Um, and there's there's less written about what the effect of this was on their surviving siblings, but it must have been quite traumatic. If you're being brought up in a royal nursery and you've got, you know, your little brother or your big sister or something and suddenly they're just not there because they've died, this can have a profound effect on a child. And particularly when we're talking about hereditary monarchy, it can make an enormous difference to the course of the rest of your life. If you've been brought up as the second son, your older brother's going to be the king, and and you're going to be his helpmeet or you're going to be put into the church or you're going to do so be some minor nobleman somewhere. And suddenly your older brother dies and it's like, oh, OK, you're going to be the king now. It makes a massive difference when you haven't been brought up to it. And I mean, not only that, but some of the kings and queens that we're talking about in this book did come to their thrones really early. Philip IV of France was 17 when he became king. Philip Augustus, Philip II, was 15. Louis IX of France was 12 when he became king. Um, And Henry III in England was nine years old when he became the king of England. And, you know, what's it like to be suddenly told at the age of nine or 10 or 12 that you are responsible for a kingdom with millions of people in it? I mean, obviously, if you're very young like that, you you have a regency council or something. But still, it, it's very much you're the king, you're in charge. And similarly, many of the queens, because, of course, many of these girls were married at horrendously young ages. You know, there's only so many times you can write about a 10-year-old queen before you start feeling a bit queasy, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, a huge, a huge amount of the history of these two kingdoms is the history of the story of children. And that's another thing that I really wanted to bring out in this idea of talking about them as people. They didn't just appear fully formed on the scene as adults. They had these childhood experiences. And I'd 
always sort of considered Henry III actually to be a bit of a feeble king before I knew, you know, it's not great. Um, wars with his barons and, you know, all the rest of it. But when you understand what he went through as a child, you think, actually, I'm quite surprised he was still standing up. <laughs> Never mind ruling a kingdom. Um, so these are all the, you know, the stories that I really wanted to dig into. I think this is another thing that I found really interesting in your book was this idea of unexpected events when people suddenly come to the throne or something goes terribly wrong and suddenly they have to make a decision. So how did people actually deal with these events and what difference did it make to them? Well, a, a huge difference, obviously. So when we look back at history, it it can be quite tempting to think that what happened was always what was intended to happen. And it was kind of foreordained. And, and what we can forget is that people were living through very uncertain times. And uncertain and unexpected things happened to them. You know, the best laid plans could be completely thrown out the window by infertility or child mortality or accidents. So, I mean, just take a couple of of kind of really big examples. Um, Many people will have heard of um, what we call the white ship disaster, which is where Henry I of England had um, only one legitimate son, who was called William. And when William was 17, he drowned in a ship called the White Ship. Um, And this led to Henry not having a direct male heir and led to, directly led to 20 years of civil war in in England, where his daughter Matilda fought against her cousin Stephen. And, you know, had the White Ship not gone down, that would never have happened. And there are all sorts of obscure and and quite frankly bizarre things happening that had a massive um, effect on the course of events. I could make quite a good case that Eleanor of Aquitaine only became the Queen of England because a teenager was killed by a pig in the streets of Paris. Louis VI, the King of France, had several sons. His oldest son was called Philip His second son was called Louis. This is a really bad habit of French kings, by the way. Every single French king in this book is called either Louis or Philip, and I just wish they would stop it. Philip is the oldest. He's been trained and brought up since his earliest youth that he is going to be the next king. And he's frankly, he's a bit of a lad, actually. Um, And the second son, Louis, has been told his whole life that he's going to be the helpmeet and the support, and that probably he's going to enter the church. Now, when Philip was 16, he was riding his horse through the streets of Paris with some of his friends um, when a pig suddenly shot out of an alleyway in front of him, frightened his horse, his horse threw him and then fell on top of him. And he was crushed and he died of his injuries the same day, which was just horrific and and, and tragic and shocking. Um, but in terms of the succession to the French throne, it was not as much of a disaster as the white ship had been in England because Louis VI had several other sons. So what happens is his second son, Louis, gets told, right, well, uh, you're the heir to the throne now. You're going to be the king. Now, five years later, Louis, um, then 17, about 17, gets sent south to marry Eleanor of Aquitaine. Right now, I think we kind of fairly familiar with what happened next. He was married to Eleanor of Aquitaine for some while. They only had two daughters. He divorced her, or technically it was a null, but he he divorced her. She went on to marry Henry II of England, became Queen of England. 
right? My hypothesis here is that if Philip had not been killed by that pig, one of two things would have happened. Either Eleanor would still have married Louis, who would, be, would have been the second son, because then Louis would be the Duke of Aquitaine. Um, and even though they didn't have any sons, he would not have been allowed to divorce her because it would have meant the French crown would lose Aquitaine. So she would have just stayed the Duchess of Aquitaine, never married Henry II. If Philip had not been killed, it's possible that Eleanor might have married Philip, the eldest son. And as we know, um, the problems that Louis and Eleanor had in conceiving children and in bearing sons were not Eleanor's problem, because we know that, because she went on to have loads of children with a second husband. Um, and Philip, being the sort of lad that he was, rather than a shy boy brought up to the church, um, possibly wouldn't wouldn't have, you know, had so much squeamishness about marital relations as Louis did. And he and, and Eleanor might have had a a load of children, in which case there would have been no need for her to get divorced. Equally, never married Henry II, never became the Queen of England. And all of this came about with the Plantagenets on the throne of England and everything um, because a pig ran out of an alleyway at the wrong moment in Paris. Okay, please write in and tell me that that's all completely wrong and you disagree, but this is my hypothesis and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so we're talking, we've been talking a little bit about the personalities and characteristics of kings and their queens and their families. But what personality traits and characteristics did it actually take to make a good ruler? Okay, now this is interesting because what made a good or effective medieval king was often personality traits that we find a bit repellent now, okay? One thing that really didn't work as a medieval king was trying to be lovely and affable and being everyone's best friend um, because this just resulted in, you know, ambitious nobles taking advantage and the king not being able to keep the peace and, and all sorts of things happening. So a certain degree of ruthlessness was required. It was required to keep the laws and it was required to keep ambitious nobles in line. So take, for example, Henry I, the King of England, who was renowned in his own lifetime and afterwards as a good king. Um, you know, he was the sort of guy who'd cut your hand off if he thought you might have been involved in counterfeiting coins or, or things like that. But England, under his rule, was a peaceful place because everyone was absolutely terrified of him. And so that actually makes him, you know, in inverted commas, a good king because there was there was peace in his realm. But although you had to be ruthless, you had to apply that consistently and fairly. Um, so being really, really erratic or, or having special favourites who you would let get away with anything um, was a recipe for disaster. So a medieval king had to kind of walk this path. You know, he might be nice in his personal life and he might love his wife and his children, but in public, his public persona, he had to be seen to be slightly aloof, but yeah, ruthless, hard, not afraid to make those hard decisions, even if it meant pain and suffering for some people because of the greater good. You know, being a lovely bloke was just not compatible with being a good medieval king. In fact, it was probably counterproductive 
even. Um, when I say somebody was a good king, don't assume that I would like to invite them to a dinner party. <laughs> it just means I think they were quite an effective king. I mean, Philip Augustus is, is one of my great medieval heroes, but I actually am not sure that I would personally like him very much. But as a, as a medieval king and as a character to study, and, and you just have to admire the brilliance of a lot of the things that he did. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't want to be sitting with him over the cheesecake, you know. Was personality the main cause of friction between the English and French kings? Or were there other things and then just personality amplified that? Yeah, the latter, I think. I, I'm not sure that personality was the the main factor in a lot of the wars and conflicts that happened between the kingdoms of England and France. But um, it certainly had a great deal of influence on the outcome of those. You know, because if you're at, if you're at war with somebody over a bit of territory... Um, say Aquitaine or parts of it um, but actually you know you kind of quite like the other guy you might be a bit more likely to conciliate to negotiate to try and say could we find another way out of this but if you are for example Philip Augustus and Richard the Lionheart or King John fighting over Normandy and you absolutely can't stand the other bloke um, you're really gonna kind of go for it you know, it's not, the, like I say, your dislike for the other king is, is not the main reason why you went to war, um, but it certainly doesn't help. Um, and Richard the Lionheart and Philip Augustus going on crusade together um, just, you know, is I've got a whole chapter about that because of all the breakdowns in their relationship that, that were going on there. And I don't think it helped either the crusade or France or England or anybody um, for them to go together. And this was simply because they couldn't stand the sight of each other. With all this sort of tension, was there a mediator between the two monarchs? Do we see somebody stepping in? Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the king being the sort of apex person at the pyramid of, of each country, it is quite difficult. So there was no official sort of mediator. The church would sometimes make an effort um, you know, the Pope might step in and say, look, it would be a lot better for Western Christendom if you two could just get on a bit better. Um, and again, women um, played this role, particularly if you were the, you know, the wife of one king and the sister of another one or the wife of one king and the daughter of another one. Um, and various nobles um, may have stepped in because, of course, these um, kings and queens, they had wider families as well. Um, not so much in England, where for quite a lot of the 200 years that we cover, the, the succession was sort of hanging by a bit of a thread. Um, but several of the French kings had many, many children. Um, and this meant that each king had several younger brothers who could be relied on to help and maybe put a word in the right place or, or, or something like that. But no, there was no kind of official position of somebody set up as being a mediator um, unless it was the Pope, really. The Pope sort of assuming authority over everyone and, and sort of acting as though he was knocking their heads together. Um, but it would, it would have been a very difficult position to be in. I mean, imagine trying to mediate between a king of France and a king of England in the 13th century that don't really like each other. I mean, whew, you'd only have to put half a foot wrong and uh, your head would be leaving your shoulders quite, uh, quite soon, I think. Now, you've mentioned... 
Philip Augustus as being a particular a particular character, not necessarily that you'd like to meet, but that one that you can appreciate. Do you have any other favourite figures from this story? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So you, you've already mentioned Philip Augustus. I mean, one of the other ones is is another sort of fairly obvious one. It's a lady called Blanche of Castile. She was the wife of Louis VIII and the mother of Louis IX. And um, when Louis IX came to the throne, he was only 12, and Blanche acted as his regent. And she kind of kicked all the rebellious nobles until they behaved themselves and ended the Albigensian War and ran France, and she was great. But a lot of people have heard of her. Um, I just, I'll mention a couple of favourites who are quite a lot more obscure Okay, one one man, one woman. So the woman is a lady called Constance of Brittany. She was the Duchess in her own right of Brittany. So she had no brothers, which meant that when uh, the title was going to come to her. Um, This was obviously too much of a temptation for the surrounding king. So when she was five years old, Henry II of England forced her father to make her marry Henry's son, Geoffrey, Then he forced Constance's father to abdicate in her favour so that Constance was the Duchess, which meant that Henry II ran Brittany in the name of his little daughter-in-law. And she was taken to live in the the sort of royal nursery and the royal household of England, and she hated it. She absolutely hated it. Um, And when she was older and she and her husband went back to Brittany, she encouraged him in his rebellions, and then when she died, and uh, sorry, he died, and she gave birth to uh, his posthumous son, who was Henry II's only grandson in the male line. Um, she brought him up as a kind of anti-Plantagenet, if you like, and, and spent the rest of her life fighting for his rights um, against all and sundry. I mean, she was married off again against her will. She was kidnapped. She was imprisoned. Um, she she refused to give up her son for her own freedom and stayed in prison. She was eventually released. She married again for love um, with uh, somebody who was kind of politically not terribly useful to her, but that she liked. And she just had this wonderful life. And then unfortunately, she died at the age of 40. Um, and it all went completely wrong for her son, Arthur, after that. He was captured and imprisoned and murdered. But just a wonderful, a woman who just really lived life on her own terms. Um, And my other one, and this is my very, very favourite person in the whole book, okay? His name is Philip, because, of course, everyone's called Philip. Um, But he's not a king. Um, He's Philip of Dreux, the House of Dreux, which was a sort of cadet branch of the French royal family, descended from one of Louis VI's younger sons. Um, And because he came from this sort of cadet branch and he was also the third son in his own family and therefore not in line to inherit everything, um, he was put into the church. He had no choice about this. He was, that that was it. Um, But like a lot of nobles, he rose through it quickly and he was a bishop by the time he he was 20. If there was ever a man more unsuited to be in the church than Philip of Dreux, I have yet to hear of him. Um, all the chronicles talk about how he much preferred battles to books and he loved battling. He went on the Third Crusade. He he fought in battles and conflicts. He was a particular nemesis of um, Richard the Lionheart of, of England, really got under his skin. Um, 
and just fought in every campaign going. And when he was in his 60s, he fought at the Battle of Bouvines um, on the side of the French, where because bishops weren't supposed to fight and use swords and things like that, he that the, the chronicler says he, that he, he had a mace that he just happened to have in his hand and he bashed the Earl of Salisbury off his horse and hammered him into the ground such that it made a kind of Earl of Salisbury-shaped dent in the floor, this this bishop. Um, and I just, I just love him. I just, you know, he was put into this situation. He was told you have to go into the church and he was just like, well, sorry, I'm going to live life on my own terms. So, yeah, the battling Bishop of Beauvais... Um, is my favourite, even though you've probably never heard of him. That was Catherine Hanley. Her book, Two Houses, Two Kingdoms, A History of France and England, 1100 to 1300, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.